you don't have quite the enthusiasm your son does when he gets <laughs> when he gets up here. All right, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm going to try and make it through this. Uh, appreciate those who have been praying for me. Still not out of the woods. Got some stuff going on, but uh, my uh, resident nurse is taking care of me. Uh, and so hopefully we'll get something figured out here real soon. So uh, we're concluding a series uh, this morning that we began a few weeks ago on the topic of eternity and these last two messages of the series. Uh, we're looking at the two options that come with eternity because there are only two. Two options. Jesus made that perfectly clear in the parable of the sheep and the goats, how the sheep go one place and the goats go another. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus referred to this division in a parable where he talked about a shepherd separating his sheep from the goats, the sheep going to be with the shepherd in his eternal kingdom, and the goats going to a place of eternal fire and torment, a place that Jesus, a place that Jesus called hell. And he's talking about those who belong to the Lord and then those who don't belong to the Lord. So last week we looked at the sheep and how they will go to be with the Lord or heaven. And we talked a little bit about what heaven might look like based on what the Bible says about it. This morning we're going to look at what the other option might look like. Again, based on what we see in the Bible's description of it and narrative about it. Now, up front, I want to be very honest with you because um, this isn't an easy topic to preach or, or talk about. Uh, even though Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. See, the problem in preaching a message on heaven or hell is then that kind of makes the Bible a, a, a book about that particular topic. All right, so like last week I'm, or two weeks ago I preached on heaven, so the tendency is to kind of view the, the Bible as a book about heaven. This morning I'm going to be talking about hell, so I think the temptation might be to kind of view the Bible as a book about hell. And, and that's not the case at all. This is a book about God's love and God's plan. Okay, that, first and foremost, that's what we need to understand. This is a book about God's love and God's plan, right? First John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, here it is, God is love. The Bible is a book about God's love and His will, and people who are ignorant of that fact tend to be the ones who attack or at least question God's love. And the point of attack usually comes in the form of one of two questions. First of all, they'll, they'll, they'll point to all the pain and suffering and violence and injustice in the world, and they'll throw this question out or something similar to it. How could a loving God allow something like that to happen? How many of you, anyone ever asked you that question? Right? They know you're a Christian. If, if you serve God long enough, someone's going to present that question to you in some, in some fashion. How could a loving God allow something like that to happen? And it's easy to see why people would default to that. I mean, just look around you. I mean, uh, just even locally. Uh, you know, the shooting in KCK last week or week before, you know, people walk in there and shoot four, shoot nine people, five of them die. I mean, and that's like close to home. I mean, this kind of stuff goes on all the time. And so it's easy to see why someone's mind could probably default to that. The other point of attack on God's love comes in the form, uh, in, in, in some form or variation of this question, how could a loving God create a place like hell? And when I shared this message a couple of years ago or something similar to this, um, I pointed out that that's a trick question. Don't fall for it. That is a trick question that Satan has used, and he's used it before to cast doubt on God's love and benevolence towards us. It was packaged a little different the first time that he used it, 
but it's pretty much the same question. The true question, not the trick question, the true question is, how could anyone refuse a God who loves them so much? That is the true question, people. So don't, don't get tricked by the enemy. The true question is, how could anyone refuse a God who loves them so much? That's the ultimate question. Because here's the deal, and we're going to see this in our study this morning. Hell was not a part of God's original plan of creation. Hell was, if you can believe this, hell was brought about by necessity. And we're going to see that as we look through the scriptures. But not only that, and this is amazing, but having been brought about by necessity, God had to remodel it. God had to enlarge it. Seriously. God had to enlarge it. Right? God did not plan hell. It became necessary. It became the necessary option for those who willingly chose to reject God's offer of love and in so doing set themselves cross-grained to God's will and plan for their lives. And because this is all God's creation, he's not just going to walk away from it and go somewhere else and start over. No, this is his creation. He loves it and is committed to it, and consequently, if there's anything that defiles or opposes it, then it must have its own place to dwell. And that's why hell was created, for those who chose to reject God's plan of love and forgiveness. Right. So, up front, I want us to look at a couple of facts about hell. Some people know this, some people don't. Fact number one about hell, it was not God, part of God's original plan. It was created after the fact to accommodate those who chose to pursue their own will over and against God's will. Fact number two about hell, and this is really amazing, it had to be enlarged later because of the masses of those who relentlessly, blindly, and stupidly defy and deny the will of the one who made them because they don't understand what really is the theme of his heart and the theme of his will for them and for mankind. Right. So, this morning as we conclude the Eternity series, we're going to look at what eternity apart from the Lord's presence might look like or what Jesus, the place that Jesus called hell. Then next week, the Lord willing, we're going to begin a new short series titled When the Devil Knocks. And we're going to be looking at our adversary, the devil. You know, the devil wasn't always the devil. In fact, he used to be one of the good guys. Did you know that? He did. Lucifer. Used to be one of the good guys. It's, it's a fascinating story, but we'll talk about that next week. And it's not going to be, listen, it's not going to be a, a devil glorifying series. Michael Corleone in Godfather 2 throws out this line. He said, My father always told me, keep your friends closer and your enemies even closer. Keep your friends close and your enemies even closer. That's what the purpose of the series is about to learn his strategy so we can be victorious against him. Okay, so that's what the series is about. But for this morning, yeah, let's talk about H-E double toothpicks. And yes, it is a difficult topic to talk about. I believe, I believe it was difficult for Jesus to talk about. I really do. Uh, but he didn't shy away from it, that's for sure. Someone figured out that Jesus actually preached about or taught about hell 33 times. In fact, he taught about hell more than he taught about heaven. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I believe Jesus preached more about hell than heaven because he didn't want people to go there. He didn't want anyone to go there. So Jesus' public ministry, think about this. I've got to think about this. Three years, during that three years, Jesus preached on hell about 33 times, which if my calculations are correct, that meant that Jesus preached or taught on the topic of hell about once a month on the average. Only Jesus could get away preaching about hell once a month, right? Let me try that, see how far I get. You all quit coming back to church, right? Seriously, you, 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 you know, average that out. About once a month, Jesus preached about hell. 
Why? Because I think that he didn't want people to go there. He wanted them to understand what was at stake here. Right? As far as the Bible as a whole, hell's mentioned 167 times between both Old and New Testaments. But that hasn't kept some Bible scholars, theologians, and even some churches and denominations from distancing themselves from the subject. Let me think about this. When was the last time before this morning, or if you were here whenever two years ago when I shared something similar, when was the last time you heard a message on hell? You don't hear messages on hell, and for good reason, right? Who wants to hear a message about hell? No one wants to hear a message about hell. But we have to talk about it because, you know, to say, well, you know, if you don't, if you don't talk about it, it won't exist. You know, it won't happen. No. No, I came across this interesting statistic in my study. If the U.S. were 100 people, look at this, 55 would believe in both heaven and hell, 17 would believe in heaven but not hell, and 25 would believe in neither. So if only one out of every two people even believe in hell in the first place, then by golly, a pastor can certainly preach on a topic like hell and be relevant, right? Just want to make sure we're tracking together. Seriously, you don't hear very many topics on hell anymore. And I get it. It's not something that you want to talk about, that you want to acknowledge. But it is real, and Jesus talked about it. So we're going to look at what Jesus, not me, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about this place called hell. So with that, open up in your Bibles or your version Bible app on the smartphone to Luke chapter 16. Before we begin looking at this passage, I want to mention something that I think is important for us to note as we read through this and try to understand what Jesus was saying. The first thing that I want to note is the fact that many Bible scholars and theologians believe that this wasn't a parable, but a true story. Now, many theologians and Bible scholars believe that this wasn't a parable, but actually a true story. Now, why do they think that? I mean, it kind of reads like a parable when you read it. Well, it does, but look closely and you'll see some differences that many that cause many to believe that this was actually a true story. And here's a couple things I want to point out. First of all, the story is never called a parable. Okay? Many of the parables are introduced that way as Jesus, then Jesus told a parable. Okay? This is never called a parable like the sower in the sea, the prosperous farmer, the barren fig tree, the wedding feast, and those kind of things. The second, second thing I want you to notice is the story of rich man and Lazarus uses the actual name of a person. No other parables do that. No other parables uses the real name of a person. Yet this story of the rich man and Lazarus uses the real name of a person. Right? Third, this particular story does not seem to fit the definition of a parable, which is a presentation of spiritual truth using an earthly illustration. The story of the rich man and Lazarus presents spiritual truth directly with no earthly metaphor. The setting for most of the story is the afterlife, as opposed to the parables, which, which unfold in earthly context. By the way, this isn't the same Lazarus that was good friends with Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. That's a, that's a different person. So you ask, all right, so why is this important, Pastor? Or is it? Well, it's important because as we begin to unpack this, this story and understand the significance of what's taking place, the fact that it really happened only punctuates the horrific truth about hell. That's why it's important to acknowledge this. It only punctuates the hor horrific truth about eternity apart from the Lord. All right, so let's read it. Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what, with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or, or bosom, the old English says. Question. Got a question right here. Let's stop real quick. Uh, was Abraham a real person? Okay, that's right. He, all right. No, that wasn't a trick. Abraham's a real person. I want, we want, we need to verify that. All right. Abraham was a real person. Okay. We'll come back to this. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, Hades is the Greek word for hell, being in torment, apparently this word torment was important to what Jesus was teaching here because it, or a variation of it, appears no less than four times in this lesson. He's teaching them on the topic of hell. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish. That's a variation of that word torment in this flame. So Jesus talking here says two things about hell. Number one, it's a place of torment. Number two, it's a place of, of fire or flames. All right, let's continue reading. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Third time Jesus used that word torment to describe hell. Verse 26. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here to us. And he said, Then I beg you, fathers, to send to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Fourth time Jesus uses the word for torment in describing hell. But Abraham said, but they, they have Moses and the prophets. We'll come back to that phrase. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All right, real quick, let me emphasize the fact that this was Jesus talking here. So this should be an all debate on whether or not there's a hell. This is Jesus talking here. And he talked about hell four different times. He described it as a place of torment. All right? So this should end all debate on whether or not there's a hell. Jesus referred to a specific man with a specific name who was in hell. Furthermore, this should also end any debate about whether or not fire is associated with hell. And think about this. 32 times in the New Testament, 32 times the New Testament refers to hell as a place of fire or flames, unquestionable, everlasting, eternal fire. Jesus himself used the word fire to describe hell 19 times. And this should end all debate about whether or not hell is a place of torment. Again, Jesus used that same word four times just in that one paragraph. The word he used, it's an interesting Greek word. It's one of those words that has multiple meanings. In fact, this word has three different meanings. The first meaning is acute pain from debilitating disease. Another variation of the word was the same word used to describe a rack of torture when they would torture someone. And the third meaning, uh, the variation of the word, is the word used to describe a fire so hot that it can melt precious metals. Okay? So, based on these descriptions that Jesus gives us about what hell might look like, I want us to look at three things that happen to a person who goes to hell based on this story that Jesus told. All right? Point number one, they desire comfort. People that go to hell will desire comfort. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
the rich man calls out to Abraham and asks if he could send Lazarus over that he might dip his, just his finger, look at that, just his finger in some water and place it on his tongue, hoping to find some release. No, he didn't even ask for a bucket. Didn't ask for a bucket of water. He didn't even ask for a cup of water. He asked, and this is amazing, he just asked if Lazarus could dip the end of his finger in some water and just a drop or two from it would bring some relief to him. That phrase, I am in anguish, it's an interesting phrase. I don't mean to get too greeky on you, but when you break that sentence down grammatically, here's basically what it means. It's referring to how one would torment themselves. You say, well, how could someone torment themselves in hell? Well, we don't know for sure. I have an idea, a theory. The self-torment is seen in our regret. Which makes sense. Because, you know, after hell, that's it. There is no second chance. Right? I think that that would be our regret, our anguish over knowing that it didn't have to be that way. Now let me pause to reiterate something I said before, but it's important that we make sure we understand this truth. Hell was not created for us. Hell was not created for us. Well, then why was it created? The prophet Isaiah tells us why it was created, right? Matthew said in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew tells us there, right? God did not prepare hell for you. And God wants us to understand that. But he did prepare a place for you. Did you know that? He prepared a place for you in heaven. And we need to understand that. Hell was not prepared for you. Okay? Get that clear. Heaven was prepared for you. So, they they desire comfort. Second thing about people who go to hell. They express concern. Verses 27 and 28. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. See, to me, this is probably the most horrific part of hell. I mean, it's all horrific, but this is what makes hell, hell, in my mind. That we'll actually be able to express concern. And everyone in hell will have this thought at some point, or continually. I hope my children don't come here. I hope my spouse doesn't come here. I hope my grandkids don't come here. Or maybe, maybe they'll have this thought. Well, I know that so-and-so goes to church and you know, maybe they'll tell my kids about this place. Maybe they'll tell them at Easter or at Christmas when they go to church. Maybe someone will tell my grandkids about this place so they won't have to come here. So according to Jesus' description of hell, people who go there will desire comfort or relief. People in hell will express concern. And the third thing Jesus said about those in hell, they will seek consolation. Verse 30, But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The rich man here now appeals to Abraham from, and and this isn't a coincidence, by the way, that, that his appeal is based on someone rising from the dead, telling his family. But he says, look, if someone rose from the dead and went and told my brothers, my household, then they'd believe for sure. And Abraham's response to this, this is fascinating. He says, Luke, uh, Luke 16, verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
Understand, the Jews recognized Moses as the author of the first five books of the Old Testament and the prophets as the authors of the rest. And remember, at this time, this conversation would have taken place. Think about this. When this conversation would have taken place, there was no New Testament around. It hadn't been put together yet. So this was pre-New Testament, all right? So when Abraham says, look, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, watch this. This is fascinating. Essentially, Abraham's saying, look, if they won't believe what the Bible says, they won't believe someone who rises from the dead and tells them. That's what he's saying. No, it doesn't matter if someone rises from If they won't believe what Moses and the, in other words, the prophet, if they won't believe what the Bible says, that's what he's saying. If they won't believe this, it doesn't matter who rises from the dead. They won't believe it. Doesn't that sound familiar? Someone rising from the grave, rising from the dead, rising from the grave, pe- telling people the truth. Didn't that happen? Did everyone believe it? No, it's a fascinating story. Now, this story we're looking at here is describing hell before the resurrection of Christ. We know that because of where Lazarus was, a place called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. Every person who died before the resurrection of Jesus went to a place of waiting. Okay, Apparently, there was a couple of kinds of compartments with a chasm between them, separating them. One was hell, where, where people were tormented. The other place is referred to as Abraham's bosom. It was apparently a place of waiting for the Old Testament saints, okay? Now, look, this this can get kind of confusing, but remember what the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Christians at Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 10, he said, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean, but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So, apparently before ascending to heaven, Jesus first descended to that place of waiting for all the Old Testament saints and led them out of that place, out of that place of waiting into heaven. Which poses the question, how will Old Testament saints be judged since they lived before Jesus? It's a great question. The answer is they'll be judged according to how they live their lives and according with God's law and God's word. That's how they're going to be judged. Okay? So, that's a glimpse of hell before Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible also describes hell after the resurrection, and that's why I want us to look at as we wrap things up here. It is a scientific fact that there are two physical properties on this planet that keep us, as human beings, mentally stable. Those two things are light and solid. Okay? Light helps us find and maintain our bearings if we can see where we're going, what we're doing, what's out there. There's a sense of assurance and confidence with that. According to the Bible's description, there is no light in hell. No light. In fact, it's described as a place of outer or total and complete darkness. In fact, the Greek word used to describe this aspect of hell is a word that means, literal meaning is total blackness. And those people who say, well, if I'm going to go to hell, at least I'll be with all my friends. No, you won't. You won't be with anyone. According to the description, you won't be with anyone. No one at all. Not only will people in hell not ever see anyone, they'll never talk to anyone except themselves. Say, what about the rich man talking to Abraham? That event took place before the resurrection. Apparently the horror of hell gets amped up after the resurrection. You won't ever talk to anyone in hell. There's no light there. All the light will be in heaven. 
Did you know that there's no sun in heaven? You know what the source of light is in heaven? Jesus. Jesus is the source of light in heaven. Isn't that kind of, I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it ought to be good, pretty cool, right? Jesus is the source of light in heaven. And the reason there's no light in hell is because the source of all light takes his presence from that place. We need light to maintain our sanity. The second thing we need is solid. Being able to hold on or grab onto something helps keeps us mentally stable on this planet. Just being able to sit down, stand, walk or run or pick up something. In the book of Revelation, chapters 9, 11, 17, and 20, in each of those chapters, hell is described as a, watch this, bottomless pit. People in hell will never touch anything. They'll never sit down. They'll never walk. They'll never stand. They'll never be able to reach out and touch anything. Light and solid are crucial to our sanity. Neither will be in hell. Isn't that interesting? Two things necessary for our emotional well-being and stability are rest and hope. Rest and hope. And while rest could certainly be considered something crucial to our physical well-being, it's also true, and you know this, if you go too long without rest, it catches up with you, right? Like the times my wife tells me, you need a nap. Kindergarten had it right. Remember, you used to take your, you used to take your mat to kindergarten with you, you know, for that nap time every day? When you turn 60, it comes full circle. You take your nap with you, take your, <laughs> right. In this life, we know that if we get too tired, if we just get a little rest, just a little, all we need, you know, just a power nap, just something to catch up. Just close our eyes and rest for a few minutes that we'll feel better. In Revelation 14, verse 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name, people in hell will have no rest. The second thing we need for our emotional stability and well-being is hope. There's no hope in hell. In fact, hell personifies hopelessness. On this earth, in this life, there's always hope. Do you realize that, think about this, someone who commits suicide, think about this, someone who commits suicide is someone who Satan lied to and somehow convinced that what was true of hell was also true on earth, that there was no hope in this life. And that's a lie. There's always hope in this life. It's beyond this where there's no hope. As long as you're alive, as long as you're breathing, you have hope because you can turn to God. Not so in hell. There is no hope in hell because that's the final destination. When I say final, I mean final, as in forever. Can't help but wonder that every person who goes to hell will at some point have a thought along the lines of, you know, when I've been here a thousand centuries, I won't be any closer to being out of here. Pastor, you know, I'm not real comfortable talking about this. You know what? I'm not real comfortable talking about it either. <laughs> Just being honest, you know. I'm not. Uh, we don't like talking about this. But you know, Jesus talked about it. He talked about it more in heaven. 
And again, I think he did that because he wanted to make sure people understood what was at stake. And I didn't share this message so you'll commiserate over those in hell. Right? I'm sharing it because if Jesus thought it was important enough to preach on about once every four weeks during his three and a half years of ministry, then I feel like it's my responsibility as your shepherd, as your teaching pastor, to share with you what the Bible says about this place. But, again, let me reiterate, God didn't create hell for us. We already saw that in Matthew 25, 41. Jesus told us specifically why hell was created. For the devil and his angels, his followers. But let me put it this way, because I know there's part of us that says, you know, I, I, I can see people being punished for their sins, but forever? I mean, it's that forever. That's what gets us, right? It's that forever thing that kind of gets us. I mean, can't they serve their time and then you know, be done with it? Listen, I want you to understand that um, the person that hell was created for, Jesus told us specifically what his goal is for you. And his goal for you, I mean, from the morning you, from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed and even while you're sleeping, he's got like a threefold agenda for you. And in John 10.10 10, it says he wants to kill, steal, and destroy. That's it. Satan, that's what he wants for you. That's it. That's all he wants for you people. He wants to kill you, steal from you, and destroy you. Every facet of your life. And, and, and you're going to argue with God about creating a place like hell for someone who's bent on doing that? You need to see the large picture here. Hell was not created for us. But there was a place that was created. It's called heaven. Jesus said that. So man, I got I got a lot of places, got a lot of rooms for you. Got a lot of rooms for you. John 10:10, 10, 10, thief comes to kill, steal and destroy. But God did not create hell for us. He did create heaven for us. And please understand, please understand that God doesn't send anyone to hell. If someone goes to hell, it's because that was their choice. That was their choice. They, they chose to do that. Okay? And we need to understand that. But God in His grace, in His mercy, He did give us that choice. God is a just judge. Psalm 7, verse 11 God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. So when you wonder if the wicked, if the wickedness will go, the wicked people will go unpunished or injustices will go unaddressed, the psalmist tells us there that no, there's going to come a day. Acts 17.31, for God has set a day when he will judge the world. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So, this place called hell, it does exist. Jesus talked about it, but it was not created for us. But that's our call. We make that choice. We make that decision. Everyone bow your heads, please. Lord, I do pray that um, you would help us understand what your word says about this place called hell, that it was never in your plan for us from the beginning. It was only after the fact when Lucifer rebelled and was cast out of heaven and those that chose to follow him, Lord, 
That's why hell was created. So I do pray, Father, that we would trust you, Father, your fairness, that you are the true judge, Lord. If there's anyone here this morning that has never received your love and forgiveness that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that they might be willing to do that. That they might just acknowledge their sin. Just pray, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. I pray, Father, that you would forgive me. That you would help me to begin to live my life for you. And as they do, Lord, I pray that you would honor that with your word and encourage them. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we might leave here now not to commiserate over hell or those that might have gone there, but with a fresh awareness of letting people know that, yes, there's a hell that exists, but it wasn't, for, it wasn't intended for us. That God has a better place for us. And that we would begin to approach our walk with you accordingly, Lord, with that sense of urgency, letting people know that there's a God who loves them, has a plan and purpose for their life, if they would only turn to him. We thank you for doing these things, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a wonderful day. There's some bread. There's some Panera bread back there. Pick up some of that before you leave.